Well, Happy New Year. How's everybody's New Year's resolutions going so far? So far, so good, right? Well, one of mine was to eat a healthy breakfast every morning, and guess who left the house without eating anything? So I'm hoping for some quick reactions if I start to pass out in the front row here. You guys are on call for me. But the good news is that the beauty of a New Year's resolution is that it's never too late to change it, right? So tomorrow I'll just make it. I'm going to eat a healthy breakfast every other day. Start fresh tomorrow. We're still on a good foot, right? But this is what happens at this time of year, right? We use January 1st, which is today, as the jumping-off point for a fresh start in our lives. And today, January 1st, is going to be the day in our own personal histories that goes down as the day that everything changed. But actually, it's a holiday, and we have a huge family dinner. And Aunt Millie always has that double cheese, bacon, macaroni casserole, and I can't miss out on having a huge portion of that tonight. So I'll start the diet tomorrow. Or the Bears are playing today. Assuming that people still watch the Bears,、uh, the Bears are playing today. So I'll just go to the gym tomorrow. I'll start that workout regimen tomorrow. And for me, I'm preaching today, so there's no need for me to spend any extra time in God's Word. I can just start that tomorrow. January 2nd is definitely going to be the day that goes down that everything changed for me. And if you're anything like me, and you're relating to some of these, as the year goes on, the goal seems a little bit too big. The resolution becomes A little bit too massive for me to reach. You start to think about, look at where I'm at right now. There is absolutely no way I could make it to where I set the goal for myself. And so we start to amend the goal. We amend the resolution, making it a little bit smaller, a little bit more attainable. Kind of pandering to our confidence that we can get there, and all of a sudden, going to the gym three times a week becomes just driving past the gym on your way to work once a week. Um, going to to、um, church to serve in the church once a month becomes just making it out of bed to get to church once a month, and so we start to fall back as the months go on into the year. We start to fall back into our old and comfortable way of living, slowly marking the end of the new start that we tried to make.、And、you see, we're left as this shell of a half new. Person, we started to become new and we stopped. And so, half new isn't really fully new, I wouldn't say. And at that point, it's really not new at all. A few months ago, I was in the refrigerated section of my local grocery store, and I was standing in front of the yogurts, and I was staring, trying to find my favorite brand of yogurt. Couldn't find it. It wasn't in its usual spot in the shelf, and so I was scanning the rows and rows and rows of yogurts, trying to find the calm, like light blue packaging that I've grown to love.、It、wasn't there. Moments passed. I was starting to kind of go a little crazy in my mind, trying to find it. I was wondering why they made so many varieties and flavors and brands of yogurts, and who even knew or cared about the live and active cultures that are within the yogurts. Still nothing. Couldn't find it. I knew I had been there a while because the man who was restocking the breakfast meats on my right-hand side had politely passed behind me and was casually acting interested in the UPC codes of the butter substitutes on my left, waiting for me to move on so he can do his job. Couldn't find it. As I was about to tear my eyes away from the shelves to give up on the search, I saw it—my yogurt. But it was a little different. It look, didn't look the same. 
and it had a little yellow label on the corner of the packaging that said, "New look, same great taste." So triumphantly, I grabbed a few cups, threw them in my cart, headed out. When I got home, I ripped open the packaging and dug in. After the first couple bites, I realized that the packaging was true. While it looked a lot different, it looked like it was brand new, a new creation of yogurt. The inside, the part that mattered, the reason why I bought the product, was the exact same. It was no better or no worse than what I had known it to be before. It was exactly what I expected. This is what happens when we seek newness, right? We end up as a new look, same old me. We might even appear to be a little bit different to our friends that know us well. Maybe, oh yeah, he was trying to do something different, but the deeper they go into us, we haven't changed at all. And the problem that happens is that we settle for this type of half-new nature. We fill the void of being fully new with being half new. I think the reason for this is that we're being inspired by the wrong type of hope. We're being inspired by a cultural New Year's resolution-style hope, and this hope is is self-created and it's weak. It's based in uncertainty and it is powered by a passive optimism. That on the outside says, "I can do this," but on the inside says, "Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. Look at where I've been. There's no way I can reach that summit." On the outside, it says, "I'm so excited for this new challenge in my life," but on the inside, I'm too scared to step out of my comfort zone in that way. This is the same hope. That we cling to, to inspire our spiritual lives as well. You see, this type of cultural New Year's resolution hope is the diesel fuel that we liberally pump into the regular gas tanks of our spiritual vehicles. It just doesn't work. It doesn't correctly power us. And so there is an alternative. And the alternative to this this cultural hope is the true and certain hope that's found in the love of Jesus Christ. And it's it's not the hope of a fresh start or just a new beginning, but of new creation. And so today, in order to understand what this new hope, this true hope, looks like in our lives and what it means for us, I want to jump into a story from the book of Acts. And it's a story of about a man named Saul or Paul, as many of us know him. Um, we know he goes on to be one of the most influential people in Christian history as a catalyst for growth for the early church, bringing the word across nation boundaries and, and bringing new life into what it means to be a Christian. And、um, when we join Saul, when we join Saul in this story, it is a time that the Jewish community is going through a split between the people who believe that Jesus was the true Messiah who died and rose again. And the people who believed he was nothing more than just an arrogant heretic. Saul was well educated. He was Jewish. He was a Pharisee, and he lived in this camp. He believed that Jesus was a heretic and nothing more. And he was somebody who who was very fervor. He had a lot of fervor and zeal for his spiritual life. And the way that he displayed that 
was by persecuting the people who lived in this camp. He tortured Christ's followers, and he was good at it. In fact, if you think about it, Paul, Saul had to be engrafted into this Pharisaic community, this community of people who were his friends, his family, all believed the same way as him. Not only that, but they likely encouraged him and even heroized him for the persecution and torture that he was doing to Christ's followers. All of Saul's habits, the way he lived, his identity was tightly tied to this torturous behavior. In fact, as we jump into this story of Saul in a moment, we join him on a six-day, 150-mile trek all the way from Jerusalem up north to Damascus in Syria. And the sole purpose of this journey was to capture Christians who were fleeing from the persecution and bringing them back to Jerusalem to try them and torture them. You see, Saul's passion for destruction knew no bounds. He would go anywhere in the name of ending Christianity. And if we did not know the end of Saul's story, if we did not know what he went on to become, we would have the same type of cultural hope for him, right? It'd be so great if Saul could have a fresh start, wouldn't it? But if we look at who he is, that's not realistic. There's no chance that he'd ever be somebody who follows Jesus. No way. So let's pick up Saul on his journey. This is Acts 9, verse 3. It says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Let's back up for a second. I have to imagine that on this trek to Damascus, Saul had to have had a seed of thought in the back of his mind that this Jesus that everybody was talking about was actually the real deal. A seed of thought that he desired to be inspired by a new type of hope that would carry him out of darkness. I come to this conclusion because if we read through the the way that he interacts with this divine voice, you sense a stirringness and an uneasiness in his soul. You see, Saul, we already know, was well-educated and Jewish. And see, so he would have had to have recognized from his studies of the Jewish scriptures that that bright flash of light was the presence of the God of Israel. And yet, instead of addressing God confidently, he timidly picks his voice up and says, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? It's in that question that you can feel the tension, the battle in his mind. You can sense the fear that the voice, the divine voice that would answer him would be that of Jesus and that everything that he lived for, everything that he identified with would be incorrect and he would have to change. Let's read on. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. 
For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Just like that, Saul's world is flipped upside down. Not only was that the voice of Jesus, the one in whom he believed to be nothing more than a heretic, but this Jesus was saying that Saul was persecuting him personally. And this confused Saul. This was strange for Saul because in his lifetime, Saul had never met Jesus. He had never talked to Jesus. He had never seen Jesus. And yet Jesus is saying that he was attacking him. It was right there in that personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus that Saul starts to understand just a little bit about the love of Jesus. You see, Saul thinks about it and he's, he's going over in his mind and he starts to realize that Jesus loves people so deeply that, in a, perso- that a personal attack on one of Jesus' children is a personal attack on Jesus himself. Friends, Jesus loves us all so fully that he rejoices when we rejoice and he suffers when we suffer. Saul starts to understand that if this love of Jesus is so inconceivably great, there has to be a new hope of new creation in Jesus. So Saul is blind for three days, and he has to be led around everywhere. I imagine him bumping into everything, um, stubbing his toe on every little bench. He's, he's, his followers are carrying him and leading him through the town. This is a huge juxtaposition from the Saul that we meet at the beginning of the story. Arrogant and confident at the beginning now is pathetic and timid. And in those three days without his sight, he had to have been left with just his thoughts, thinking over and over again about this experience that he had on the road. What it means for the way that he used to be living his old life and what it meant for him to create a new life in Jesus Christ. In order to be exempt from my final exam in my environmental restoration class in my freshman year at DePaul University, the professor told the class that we could sign up to volunteer for a day at a local uh, preservation um, movement or a forest preserve. And so being the type of person who the environmental sciences does not come very easily, jumped at the chance to eliminate the test. And I signed up to volunteer at a forest preserve in the far northwest reaches of the city of Chicago. It was one of those classic late spring days that we all know and love where the weather forecasters are saying a high of 65 and it never reaches 30 degrees. And I was already upset because of the cold and better yet, I had to take the L, I had to take two buses and a mile-long walk just to reach the forest preserve. As I walked past the trees in the parking lot, as I was walking into the, the forest preserve, I was looking around and just wondering what type of monotonous and boring work I'd be wasting the next several hours of my life in. As I pushed open the door to the cottage that served as an office building for the preserve, the man behind the desk didn't even acknowledge me. So after a few awkward moments of me standing there waiting for him to pick his head up, I said, hi, I'm here from Professor Henehan's class and I'm going to volunteer today. The man who later introduced himself to me as Mike slowly lifted his head up and his gaze met mine and with a terrifyingly strange smile, he said, well, it's your lucky day. We're doing a burn. 
All right. He jumps up, shoots out the back door. I cautiously follow him, expecting to be burning some sort of large piles of debris that they had gathered from the previous fall until Mike hands me a strange type of oil can with a live flame at the end of it. It's a drip torch, he said. We have to burn the entire forest. All right. Well, with we, I had bewilderment and confusion on my face, which must have provoked a further um, explanation of our, our task of the day from him. And he, he told me, you see, in order to have new and healthy growth this spring, we need to burn all the dying and dead debris from the forest floor. The old needs to make way for the new. And with that, he set me off following the perimeter of the forest floor, dropping little drops of flame onto the ground and letting the wind carry the control fire all the way across, preparing the ground for restoration. You see, Saul in these three days is starting to understand that in order to become new, we have to let go of the old. Following the, G- the hope in Jesus, this true hope that we're talking about, it requires that the old has to be set free. We have to let go of that. Saul realized he had to take a drip torch to his entire old life, the habits and lifestyle, the things that were inhibiting him from following Jesus. The thing is, even today, the old is where we are most comfortable. Saul's identity was tied to the old. Our identities are often tied to the old. Even if it is destructive or sinful, we are still most comfortable in the old. And in order to get out of it, we follow this self-created weak hope that leaves holes for us to slip and fall into and isn't strong enough to pull us out again. In these three days, Saul was battling these feelings, trying to figure out what it meant to, to burn away the old and step into new creation. Turning back to Saul's story, we read on. It says, verse 19, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him, to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all those who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So enter Ananias, one of the very Christ followers that Saul came to Damascus to capture and torture. And so when Jesus told him the plan, Ananias likely had the exact same reaction that many of us would have. Jesus, you're talking about Saul of Tarsus here. This guy is going around killing all of the people who call your name. There is absolutely no chance that he is going to follow you. I'm sorry, it's crazy. This is the worst of the worst. It's not going to happen. In that moment, Ananias is limiting what God can do. If you're like me, this is a common theme. 
We often limit what God can do in our lives or through our lives for the sake of others. And this usually comes out in the way that we act on God's direction. When we are given God's direction, we often take the cultural hope to inspire us to reach that goal. But that cultural hope lacks the certainty that God will provide for us. And so without that certainty of provision, we try and we fail to do everything on our own. But with the certainty of the true hope through the love of Jesus, we can open ourselves and let the Lord work freely and fully through us. Ananias chooses that true hope. Verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands upon Saul, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. You see, Ananias, empowered by the Holy Spirit and inspired by this true hope offered to us by the love of Jesus Christ, he steps out of his comfort zone into the presence of the man who came to capture him. Scales fall from Saul's eyes and new sight is restored. His old perspective falls away like the scales from his eyes and in its place, new perspective blossoms. You see, this is the picture of true hope. You see, I like to believe that this story, this event in Saul's life had to inform the way he lived and he thought and he wrote later on. This event had to have been on the forefront of Paul's mind as he wrote many of the letters that we read in the New Testament today. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians, he writes a beautiful picture of true hope. And in a second, we're going to read this But I want you to receive this statement from Paul through the lens of this conversion story that we've just been reading about. This is 2 Corinthians 5.17, and it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. I'm going to read this again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, or some translations read, united in Christ... The new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. You see, through unity in Christ and personal encounter with Jesus, the old in us has gone away. And notice that Paul doesn't say that in place of the old is a new beginning. No, he says, through his experience... On the road to Damascus, this experience of the the true love of Jesus, the hope that it offers, it's not replaced with new beginnings, but it's replaced with new creation. The difference between new beginning and new creation, or a fresh start and new creation, lies in the very nature of creation. And so if we turn back to the original Genesis account of the creation narrative, we read that God placed man and woman in the garden to maintain it, to care for it, to tend to it. You see, he didn't just place them in the garden and have it created and then stopped. 
because creation is not passive. Creation is constantly and continuously creating anew, day in and day out. And you see, through Jesus Christ in love, this true hope offers us just that, new creation. When we open ourselves to him, he can invade our lives and continuously prune out the old and sow new seeds of perspective and life in its place. Theologian N.T. Wright has a very poignant thought on just this topic. He says, Hope for the Christian is not wishful thinking or mere blind optimism. It is a mode of knowing, a mode within which new things are possible. Options are not shut down. New creation can happen. There's a story of a town up in the far reaches of Maine that was commissioned to be flooded as the communities nearby dammed a river and created a lake. And so in the final few months before the river was dammed, this town stopped all maintenance on all the buildings and streets and infrastructure throughout the town. And so week by week, day by day, the town started to get a little bit more run down, a little bit more ragged. And one of the residents summed it up in one statement. She said, where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. The true hope of Jesus Christ gives power to our present. We have a choice. We can follow a half-inspired, cultural, weak, fresh start-seeking hope, or we can lean into the new creation that is offered to us through the love of Jesus Christ opening ourselves to be continuously created anew. Friends, you see, the hope in Christ is true and evident time and time again in Scripture. This true hope of new creation calls us to be bold in stepping out of our areas that we've become comfortably stagnant. It frees us from our old selves and gives us the courage to let go. This true hope of new creation is what changed Paul's direction from taking tours of persecution to taking missional journeys across the world, spreading the good news. It is the same hope that inspired Ananias to step out of his comfort zone and face the man who came to kill him and treat that man like family. The true hope of new creation can be what restores you today from the old into a continually new creation. Friends, as we go out today, I want you to be thinking about this question. What is the old in your life? A better way of saying it might be, what is the current in your life, the comfortable current in your life that needs to be made old? Where have you become comfortable within destruction? Pinpoint that and take a a leap, a jump, a step out of your comfort zone inspired by this true hope of Jesus Christ. Open yourself and be inspired inspired by that love. Dive into the scriptures, embrace the community of believers around you, and become continually created anew in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we are in awe of the great love that you offer us, Lord, and the true, evident, and certain hope that comes with it. 
Lord, we pray that in this season of newness, we can seek not for just a fresh start, but we can follow after your true hope and the certainty of your provision in becoming new creations day in and day out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.